Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Coach Baseball Right podcast. I'm your host and founder of Coach Baseball Right, Steve Nicolarat. Join us as we go inside, outside, and all around baseball, discussing how to coach baseball the right way. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Nicolarat with Coach Baseball Right. Coach Baseball Right is really excited to announce our Administrator and Lead Coach Certification Program in St. Louis, Missouri, the weekend of September 27th, 28th, and 29th. As educators who are focused on best educational and up-to-date practices, we're trying to help administrators and lead coaches create an environment that will transform the baseball experiences of their players and parents. During the certification, administrators and lead coaches will be taught every aspect of baseball that they will need to know and how to execute coaching with in-depth analysis and educational resources. The weekend schedule starts on Friday night and continues all day on Saturday with a social event in the evening. On Sunday morning, we focus on giving administrators and lead coaches an action plan to leave and execute. Now what's a coach going to get by participating in this event? Over 11 hours of direct instruction. You're going to receive Coach Baseball Right Lifetime Hall of Fame membership, Coach Baseball Right coaching gear. You'll receive one ticket to the September 28th 2019 St. Louis Cardinals Chicago Cup baseball game and food and drink provided during the certification program as well. We'll be hosting and we'll be staying at the Hampton Inn Suites right across from Forest Park and other attractions near that might be of interest would be Forest Park itself and the St. Louis Zoo, downtown St. Louis and Bush Stadium home of the St. Louis Cardinals and you're just minutes away from some great cafes, bars, and restaurants located on the Hill, Dogtown, The Loop, and the Central West End. I hope everyone can join us for a wonderful weekend, September 27th, 28th, 29th, in St. Louis for our Administrator and Lead Coach Certification Program. Hope to see you there. Hi everybody, today our Coach Baseball Right podcast features former UCLA softball coach Sue Inquist. Sue holds more national championships 11 than anyone in the history of softball. She is UCLA softball's first All-American, national champion, and Hall of Famer. In 2006, when Sue retired from coaching at UCLA, she had a 887-175 record for a one-loss percentage of 835, making her the winningest softball coach among all active coaches. She is the only person in NCAA softball history to win a championship as a head coach and a player. Her tenure produced 65 All-Americans and 12 Olympians. Sue has been inducted into the Women's Sports Foundation International Hall of Fame, the National Fast Pitch Coaches Association Hall of Fame, and the UCLA Hall of Fame. Sue is also the recipient of multiple National Coach of the Year and Pac-10 Coach of the Year honors. Beyond her roles as coach and player, Sue is regarded as a leading innovator of softball instructional materials and equipment. She is the founder of One Softball, 
a dynamic organization giving parents and youth coaches access to the very best coaches, players, and thought leaders. One Softball is creating a common language of excellence for every parent, player, and coach. It's designed to help families navigate their softball journey. Off the softball field, Sue has gained the reputation as a dynamic and highly sought-after international motivational speaker. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Sue Inquist. Hi, everybody. We are here with Sue Inquist, former UCLA head softball coach, highly sought-after motivational speaker, and one of the founders of One Softball. Sue, thanks so much for being on the Coach Baseball Right podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sue, our uh, Coach Baseball Right program is all about helping organizations, coaches, and parents transform baseball, softball experiences, and developments. We started this podcast to allow our listeners to hear different perspectives on coaching baseball and softball the right way. So with that being said, let's jump into our first question. Can you give me a little bit of a background um, on your playing and, and how you started in softball? Well, my, my foundation is baseball. I have an older brother, 11 months. He was Little League. I tagged along back in the day when this was in the 60s. Of course, girls were not allowed. Fortunately for me, I had a brother that, who had a coach that was a forward thinker, and I got labeled the official shagger at Little League practice. And what that gave me was an incredible data bank of reading fly balls. And Coach John Springman uh, would allow me to get my round of five by five after every single practice. And so uh, I fell in love with baseball, fell in love with the game, went, crossed over to fast pitch, but then jumped back into baseball in high school. I'm the recipient of Title IX. And when you have a law that protects women to be able to have equal access, I tried out for boys' baseball, played boys' baseball at, at uh, San Clemente High School. That got me the exposure to UCLA uh, when there was a girl playing on a boys' team. Back then, it wasn't popular to do it. Now, it's, a, it's something we celebrate. But that got me to UCLA and um, went to school, graduated with my BS in kinesiology, became an assistant co-head and a head coach. I never left UCLA. So uh, don't ask me about how to get a job because I've never had a job interview. <laughs> well, what, what, what obstacles were there um, as a player uh, back in the 70s for a uh, you know, young woman playing softball? What did you face? Well, the biggest thing is that people probably don't realize is for most of us that we're trying to cross some, some barriers – as long as those women had their inner circle of men and women and, and along with their family, it was actually pretty manageable to deal with the ridicule um, and, and all of the negative things that were being said. It wasn't that bad because, remember, we did not have social media. And so, really, it was just a case-by-case -case basis of dealing with it. So, I was the first girl to play boys' baseball. And that was a controversy. You had players on the other team that wanted to know part of that. And, you know, baseball, you send your message by, you know, chin music, right? So right. Um, led the team um, getting beamed, but I was okay because that put me on base. I always struggled with the curveball anyway, so um, <laughs> I used it to my advantage. Uh, but really it was just my core group of friends that insulated me and supported me and reminded me that, 
um, I belong there. I deserve to be there. I'm good enough to be there. And uh, when I went to UCLA, a lot of people don't realize we wore the men's track team practice T-shirts. But once again, um, I was coached by a woman who said, doesn't matter what we wear. only thing that matters is our effort and our attitude. And uh, the game doesn't know that we don't have uniforms. And so I lived this vernacular my entire life around who you are will always be more important than what you do. So I was able to have a great perspective. I was raised by a, a military father, a two-time Purple Heart, and an engineer. So you can picture the discipline. And then I was raised also by a mother who was a nurse who had this empathy and big vision and super positive. So I had this wonderful group of people around me. And, you know, I think a lot of your listeners are probably parents. And I just don't think we talk enough about the impact of drip, drip, drip parental influence on the way to the park, in the parking lot, and in the stands, the impact the parent has is phenomenal. And that impact can be both positive and negative. Absolutely. Uh, I think the hardest thing for parents today is really understanding that most of them were raised in an environment where they did not have the social pressure. So it's very difficult for them. The only uh, radar they have is visual radar. Is, is my child engaged? Is my child appearing to have fun? And are they doing okay in school? Because in their generation, anxiety and depression manifested itself in withdrawal and being an outsider or mm, stopping your hygiene. Today, those student-athletes that have a propensity for anxiety and depression are actually your highest performers. So now you can look at the happiest kid on the team that's got a 4.0 popular targeted to go to a college is probably the one that is most vulnerable. Wow. And that certainly is something I think is really important for all of us to realize because, as you said, that's, we look at things differently today than we did yesterday. Yes. And it, it just I always try to share with parents, parent, if you have a parent, if you have a child that is in any sort of performance environment, so remember, they may be a dancer, they may be a pianist, they may be a spelling bee contestant, uh, an artist, anything where their activity is being evaluated. I tell parents today, just assume your kid has anxiety and act appropriately. Just assume they're overthinking. Assume they're worried. Assume they don't want to let you down. Assume they think they're going to be valued based on win or lose. Already assume that and then start to be a sport parent. Right. Now, that's great advice. Hey, so what, what, what led you into coaching? I never planned on being a coach. I got my degree in kinesiology. I wanted to be a respiratory therapist. I wanted to work in emergency rooms. I had it all slated. I was going to graduate school. And my head coach at the time said, hey, you're not going to walk on graduation until June. You graduated early in March because I went four and a half years uh, to graduate. You have 10 weeks left. Uh, will you help me out? And 
I said to myself, and I was kind of like a rebel rouser, right? I was like the one that's always doing the jokes and, you know, just having fun. And I would be the last person a team would pick um, as a right-hand man because she's such a goofball. Um, <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, uh, sure, I'll help. In the back of my mind, I'm like, hope she knows what she's getting into, right? And uh, I knew... I knew the second day of practice that I wanted to redirect my career. I knew it. I, the excitement I got when I could turn on the learning in somebody else's head was too much to ignore. And I remember calling my father, you know, remember the engineer, military guy. And I'm like, Dad, I got I to talk to you about something. Mom was on the other phone. Oh, yeah. And I told them that I want to get into coaching. Now, remember, I'm slated to go to graduate school. And my mom's like, oh, that's so wonderful. The girls will love it. Right? My mom doesn't think another thing about it. My dad's quiet. And he says, well, who's going to pay the bills? And I said, dad, dad I'm going to line up two other jobs. So I'll have three jobs. And and I'll, I'll, I'll make ends meet. And uh, I remember him saying, okay. Just remember your priorities. Your bills come first, right? Super, super regimented, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm all over it. And unbeknownst to my dad, he went to his grave not knowing this, but my mom always slipped me a check in the mail the last week. I always needed an extra 25 bucks. I couldn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. who would you say or what what impact did uh, the legendary John Wooden have on, on your career? Oh, goodness. The, the greatest impact Papa had was really the end of my career when I took over the program completely and I had an opportunity to put my handprint on the blueprint. Um, you know, Sharon Backus built the blueprint as we know at UCLA Softball. I feel very proud to be a part of that. I became her assistant when she was in her fourth year at UCLA. But I got to put my own handprint on the blueprint and... Papa was a huge influence, and more than anything, he taught me about the discipline it takes to keep the sport simple. And that was the most important and also the most difficult thing throughout my career, because any of your listeners that have been coaching for many years, the more knowledge you have, the greater the distance you are from the student. And so you have to have discipline and awareness to stay close to where their learning level is and make sure that you move at their pace, not the other way around. That was my biggest lesson and the most challenging thing throughout my career. You know, it's funny. That's, that's, That's a great piece of advice. I can think of several times on that field where I, I can relate to that, where I had to, I had to make it much simpler than, than maybe how I was trying to approach it. And then I think that'll really be a, a great insight for some of our, our coaching listeners. Yep. And, and, you know, one of the things that we can really help student-athletes with is at all ages, right, is to make everything black and white. And so what we would do is we would break down practice in and the majority of our work is really around the defense 
that's where they have to make so many decisions, right? Offensively, you have a plan, but you're only protecting 17 inches, and it's just you and the pitcher. Whereas with the team, there's communication, there's strategy, lineup, all that kind of stuff in terms of defensive alignment. And what we did is we kept it really simple. We said, today, we're working these five plays all black and white, meaning we're just going to work your reaction time, your foot speed, deceleration, angle, throws. Then there would be days I'd say we're working gray area, and that's where you have to know the situation and understand when in doubt. So UCLA worked probably when in doubt more than anything because we already had the skills. So the black and white play is really about pure physical execution. So we were we we, we recruited those kids. That that was you know we we recruited the good ones already. The differentiation I felt we had was our kids were really good in the gray area. So whether it be gray area communication on a fly ball. So black and white fly ball work is here's fly balls to third base, fly balls to first off. Okay, gray area day, here are fly balls to five, six, seven. And then we would have in the gray area when in doubt. So, of course, everyone knows call the ball three times. Perfect. What happens if they all call it three times? And then what if they all call it three times and they're in sync, sync three times? Then we would have when in doubt. So when in doubt, we know as ball players, as coaches, everyone knows when the, the when in doubt play. We watch it develop, right? You can see, oh, crap, who's catching it? So our team was taught whenever you say, oh, crap, who's catching it, or oh, crap, who's covering in that play regarding those two or three people, they always knew who the one was. So when, when in doubt, a fly ball between shortstop, third base, and outfield, our when in doubt person was a left fielder. So if the ball dropped, it was always the left fielder's fault. So then what we did is we turned the when in doubt into a black and white. And that takes, obviously, a lot of practice planning and a lot of intensity for the kids at your practice to make sure that they're prepared to be able to do that in the game. Yeah, but think about, like, think about people, like we would have camp and we'd bring kids in, like 10-year-olds, and we'd say, today we're going to work fly balls to shortstop and second base. And we go, bing, 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 back and forth, back and forth, fly ball to each one. Then we'd say, now we're going to work when in doubt. And what that means is we don't know who's supposed to catch it. And at UCLA, our shortstop catches it. So now we're going to put the ball right over the second base. And you're both going to go for it. And you're both going to call it or someone's going to call it, but there may be confusion. We're going to practice when in doubt. And who has the ball when in doubt? And a little tenure goes, I do. You said shortstop. I said, perfect. We worked out ten, you worked out for 10 minutes. That kid will have that the rest of her life. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Hey, I, I once um, read that you had said that you would have been a, a better coach um, had you known some things earlier in your career. Can you give me some examples of things that maybe you learned at the end of your career that you wish you would have known at the beginning? Oh, my goodness. Your, blog, your, your, your interview is not long enough here because I can <laughs> tell you uh, I'm the coach that has a book 
of regrets. Like, I think it's interesting. I always listen to legacy people, and they say, oh, Coach, do you have any regrets? You won five championships. And they're like, no, I have no regrets. I'm the person that's like, yeah, I have like 147 regrets, right? <laughs> but I'll tell you where they fall, that there's a theme of regrets. I regret really that I did not understand earlier in my career that it does not help you as a coach to pass a moral judgment on someone that does not have work ethic. So you got the bottom third kid, you got the bottom third, you know, 15 kids, you got three kids that are lazy. I wish someone would have told me early in my career it doesn't help being Captain Obvious and just yelling at those kids or just calling them out or being that person's like, duh, you need to work harder. I would have told my younger self, the bottom third, you need to sit down and you need to listen to their reality and start the coaching there. So many times when you sit down with a bottom third kid, let's just say you got that, alert, that lazy kid, they will, their language is automatically around victim language, right? Because the lazy kid never will sit down and go, Coach, I'm lazy. That's a top third kid. Coach, today I was lazy. Bottom third kid goes, well, I, I, I don't even really know what I'm supposed to do when, I'm, like, when I come up. No one told me or I'm too busy or no one likes me or you're, it's a victim language. And if I could go back to my younger self, I would say sit down the bottom third and lay out the question to get them to say they have more in them. So I'm going to talk to you. You're my bottom third. And I'm like, hey, can I sit down and talk to you about practice? I, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Okay. Is there any way at that when we were working the leadoffs, is there anything that's happening physically? Um, are you injured at all? Are you, you know, you did this and this. Are you distracted? To get them to say their excuse. Well, I'm not injured. I'm just like super tired. Okay, I get that. Tomorrow, I know you're probably going to, you know, you've got so much going on on your plate because you're a victim, bottom third. You wouldn't say that, but we know that's what coaches are thinking. Right. You would say, any way tomorrow you could give me, I know you're only at 80% on the leadoffs. Is there any way you could give me 100% of that 80? And then that next day, you look at them and say, I see you 100%, and you watch what happens to that bottom third. Now, you only solve one part of practice the next day, you're going to have a conversation the next day about what the next thing is. And eventually, they start to become more aware and more intentional to kind of step up the game. Hi, everybody. Steve Nicola out with Coach Baseball Right. If you are considering how to improve your organization, facility, or league, consider our organizational league facility certifications. These certifications are extremely affordable, and you can choose from three different levels. Level 1 is our most affordable certification that starts with just your administrator getting access to our pro membership resources. And then all of your coaches can be put on the same page by using our rookie membership resources. Level 2 certification 
gets all your coaches in your entire organization using our pro member membership resources together. Level 2 will help your coaches teach and develop consistently throughout your program. And Level 3, everyone in your organization, all administrators, all coaches, all parents, all get on the same page with access to our pro membership. Level 3 will completely transform your baseball program. Plus, we'll provide year-long follow-up for support, strategies, and ideas to help you and your organization maximize and use these certifications. If you're asking how you can make a difference for your organization, league, or facility, consider these organizational certifications. So now what I'd like to do is go into something that you are, I guess you're one of the founders of it. It's something called One Softball. Can you uh, yes. tell me a little bit about that, the mission, and, and what's going on there? I, I can. I got out of coaching seven years at UCLA because I got so excited about the idea. Could a championship college coach with her passion intact, I walked away from the game with my passion intact, could I collect my community of influencers subject matter experts, championship players, and ask them a bevy of questions around what it takes to be a great parent, a great coach, a great player. And then flip the script and do the same thing with the softball families. So my first three years, I traversed the country and asked, um, I was just looking at this, I have 690 questionnaires and I have 24,000 responses from them. And the questions fell into three buckets. Uh, the, question, the answers fell in three buckets of pain points. The softball community is hurting in character development, leadership, how we treat kids. The coach is saying, I'm uneducated because I was just a dad or a mom that raised their hand and said I would help. And the player is drowning in anxiety. The game is no longer fun. So then I took those pillars of questions, flipped the script, and interviewed all of the people that agreed to volunteer to be in the One Softball community, and we have 1,100 two-minute videos answering those pain points around character development, technical development, and a path to college. That is fantastic. I'm really excited. Um, I started this company with the intention of connecting our best in class to the rest of the community. And um, I think early on, I may have been a little bit ahead of my time, but uh, we're really coming into our stride now, and it's very relevant in softball and baseball. They're diamond, they're diamond brother and sister. Um, baseball parents have the same issues as softball parents. Absolutely. And so our next our next venture is to build one community of diamond families. And that's where it really starts to get exciting, is to be able to build non-softball, baseball-specific content around, uh, I'll give you an example. I built a free parents of performing children self-assessment on game day. So our one softball families can the parents can assess themselves from the time they get in the car on game day to the parking lot to the bleachers to the game 
and then before and after the game. And they get a score. Um, it, it's an anonymous survey. The data goes nowhere. But what it does is it heightens the awareness to the family to know where the college coach is judging them. So there's 27 questions. It takes about three to five minutes. Wow. You are, you are really, I think you really hit on something there. And I mean, we are doing similar things, but, but not to the extent that you have in your project. That is, that's awesome. And I hope, I wish you the very, very best with that. That is really cool. Matter of fact, on your, on your webpage, it says, inspire the player, organize the parent, and educate the coach. And I saw that and I thought, what a great, what a great idea. And really, you know, people, you know, we're going to cover three big areas right now. Um, we fit, we have finished two of the three. Uh, we have pulled together the community with the videos. We have built content, free content for the softball community. And the last thing is a platform. And so our next goal is to be creating APIs with other companies that have synergistic missions around helping our parents and connecting our college coaches to our travel coaches, and most importantly, providing a mentorship environment for the girls. Because unlike – so softball has done a bad job of, of providing legacy players in perpetuity, um, and softball is going to take that on. One softball wants to make sure every single softball family remembers Jenny Finch and Tasha Watley and Crystal Bustos, and Jeff Mendoza, and Lisa Fernandez. Some of these people, they are our Mount Rushmore of softball, and yet our sport doesn't even have a way for the current student-athlete to know who our icons are, whereas baseball has MLB. So the dad and the, the son are playing catch, then they go watch the game together, and there's a wonderful cultural experience there. Softball doesn't have that. And so one softball is going to do that because we have those Olympians in our community. So we're going to be doing some really exciting stuff around amplifying our greatest role models so they remain in perpetuity in the sport, whether they leave the sport or not. There's a way for us to go ahead and recognize them. Let's, uh, let's switch gears just a, a little bit here. I, you, uh, you were giving a talk one, one evening, and I, I heard you talk about the 33% rule, uh, about those players that – that can just they can just take all your time. Can you uh, can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Well, yeah, it, it, it was something I learned a long time ago. That um, in in what's great about this thirty three percent rule is it's for any leader. So, mom, you may not be working in a in a job where someone's paying you. You're working overtime as a mom. Everyone has the potential of being a bottom third because whatever comes out of your mouth is positive or poison. And so relevant to your audience right now, as a coach, it's one or the other. You're either breathing life and belief into them as student-athletes or you're sucking the life out of them or you're creating doubt. The same goes for the players. So once we learn to be aware that it's positive or poison comes out, that in any group, there will always be the bottom third. And so bottom third parents are the ones that love the coach in the beginning of the season, and then the minute the lineup gets set, that's the parent that wants to sit down and talk to the volunteer coach around, hey, I, I just don't think that my daughter should not be started. That's bottom third. First of all, it's none of your business. You signed your kid up, hand him over to the coach. I know the coach is a volunteer. Sit your fanny down in the stands, 
and let your kid play. This isn't about you, so don't be a bottom third parent. To the coach who is Captain Obvious measuring gaps 24-7, trust me, whether they're 8, 18, or 28, they all know when they flubbed up. So be the coach that catches them doing it right and have 99% of the stuff out of your mouth be affirmation and positivity. Catch them doing it right. And so the middle third, they blow in the wind. They're only positive if the team's doing well, they're playing, their life is wonderful. And then in the end, you got the top third, probably the people listening to this. They're the ones that go out every day and give 100% of what they have. They look for kids doing it right. They look for parents doing it right. And they see that people have a tendency to change and stretch when they're in in an emotional environment that's safe. And that's our coach's job more now than ever and than ever before. We have to remember, as a volunteer coach, your job is to serve the student, not be a yeller and Mr. Ego or Mrs. Ego girl at third base. You're literally there to create fun. So if practices are boring, that's on you. I wish someone would have told me that earlier in my career. Hey, Sue, it's not about you. It's not about you getting your 675 swings in. It's about how can I make practice fun so they don't want to leave. And I always ask coaches, you're coaching right now? Here's a check. When was the last time your team came to you at the end of practice and said, please, 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 can we please just do one more drill? Just a quick (laughs) check. Just a quick check on your coaching environment. Right. Well, let me ask you this, uh, confidence. Um, you go on to talk to a player. It's a big part of the game. And um, what do you uh, – I think I think many people think that coaches go out there and talk about some mechanical thing or something, but I'm not sure that you would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> tell me about confidence and what you say to a kid in a big part of the game. Well, first of all, let's, let's frame confidence. I'm, I'm not a big um, – I'm not a big seller of confidence. Um, now, everyone's got to remember um, where my context is. My context is dealing with Olympians. We, we had 15 Olympians. We, you know, we won 11 national titles. So if I'm not a big supporter of confidence, then I'm going to ask our volunteer parents not to be a big, big supporter of confidence. And I'm going to tell you why. We're looking at confidence as a secret sauce. We're looking at confidence as the road to the promised land. And that's a fallacy. It's a fallacy. That's not a true statement. So to those listeners out there, when you're looking at those great softball or baseball players, they're constantly busy in their head. And the trick is in that heightened moment, great champions are disciplined to keep the game simple and to focus at the task at hand to let your eyes do the work and let your body take over. Let your eyes do the work, let your body take over. But if you don't work on the, what I call a confidence bridge, meaning what bridge do I need to get on in order to be peaceful in the moment? Peaceful is attainable. Confidence is fleeting. Confidence is like the wind like, you know it's there, but man, it comes and goes and passes through very quickly and you never see it coming and you never see it going. And so for us, the confidence bridge for, for coaching is 
you must document what they must hang on to every day so you can replay that in the big moment. So what I do is every single player has, in my mind, has a list of fundamentals that they hang on to that they're very good at. And then in the moment, I know what fundamental that moment's asking for. And I always had an anecdote around that need on game day. So, for example, I have to call timeout. It's bottom of the seventh. My pitcher now has thrown two balls in a row, but technically she's thrown six in a row because she walked the kid four straight before. I call timeout. I have to go walk to the pitcher. It's not really about you know, wrist cock. It's not really about um, uh, leg stride. I literally walk out there and go, I just want to remind you, do you remember it was two weeks ago when we did the Gamer on the Main and we said, how many could you throw in a row? And you threw 27 in a row strikes. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I go, today, right now in this moment, I just need one. I'll see you on the other side of success. Have fun out there. And then I just turn around and leave. So the, the confidence bridge is documenting what they do in your mind, in your opponent that day. You know what you're going to need from certain players. That's the wonderful thing about the game. The game is so simple. It's going to ask certain things of that rise ball pitcher, of that kid that cannot hit the curveball. And you just have to keep in your mind what are the anecdotes I'll be using that day for those players. And then I go out there, I review it, I walk them over the bridge of saying, remember you did it, and in this moment, all I need you to do is stay focused on that and have fun. I'll see you on the other side. So what we do is we review, we own the moment, and then the coach projects success. I'll see you on the other side of success. Because in my career, I never heard a kid say, oh, I couldn't stand my youth coach. I couldn't stand my high school coach because he was way too positive. Right, right. That's a great piece of advice. And I think our coaches who are listening will really, really appreciate that. Um, hey, one last question here. How, how do we use sport, any sport, to empower young women? Open the doors. At the park and rec level, open the doors and amplify your marketing message that big bones, little bones, big muscles, little muscles, yellow skin, white skin, black skin, brown skin, lots of money in your pocket, no money in your pocket. We need you. Come to our fun zone that's also called volleyball or basketball or softball. We'll bring you to a place where you're going to identify how great you can be. We'll catch you when you fall, and you're going to meet some new friends you'll have for a lifetime. That's awesome. Hey, Stu, thanks so much for taking the time out of your, uh, your busy schedule and, and uh, being on our podcast. I know our listeners really, really enjoyed our conversation, and I think I could do this for another hour with you. Um, but I won't, <laughs> I I won't do that. I appreciate uh, it. If I could take a minute to just thank your, your listeners that are, that are predominantly moms and dads that turned into coaches and supporters. And just a special shout-out to the moms. We know you're the quarterback of the household. Uh, I love you all. And to the dads, thanks for being on that bucket for all those years because for me as a college coach, I've benefited from all your time. So thank you to everybody and you. 
Hey, Sue, thanks again, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks so much, my friend. We just finished our interview with uh, former UCLA softball coach Sue Inquist. What a great interview. I really enjoyed our conversation. Some of the things that Sue talked about um, was the 33% rule. The 33% rule talks about that bottom third player or that bottom third parent or that bottom third coach. We all have the capability of being in that bottom third. And we need to make sure that we understand that we don't want to be there. You know, we don't want to be that parent that complains when things aren't going right for our kid. We don't want to be that coach that brings out the worst in our players. We don't want to be that player that makes excuses. We don't want to be in that bottom third. Sue talked about confidence and how that's sort of a fleeting topic. In other words, um, confidence, in many cases, people think comes from how the kids are playing in the last two or three games. You know, they're really hot. They feel real good at the plate. But that's pretty fleeting because, as we know, we fail most of the time at the plate. Real confidence comes from the, the preparation that a player takes as the player learns how to compete. Real confidence comes from how a player prepares, knowing that the player is prepared. And when the coach goes out to talk to that pitcher in a tough situation, the coach isn't talking about mechanics. The coach is reminding the player that that player has, in fact, prepared well, has made this kind of a pitch several times, and will make this pitch in this situation. The coach is providing a bridge for the player to use, to have some fun, to get to the other side. I, I really think that's a was a great explanation of confidence. So be careful, parents, when you talk about confidence. I really enjoyed how, how Sue stressed the significance of meeting a kid where they're at. If you have a kid that's not hustling, I mean, you can point out to the kid in front of everybody else, hey, you're dogging it, let's go. That's fine. But maybe a better way might be, to bring the kid in and talk privately and see where they're at, see why they're there. They had a rough day yesterday. Kind of meet them there. And then from there, try to move them in the right direction. Try to get them to give more effort on the next day. And then when that happens, to reward them, to, to notice it. Sue got a chance to introduce her concept of one softball. What a valuable resource for players and families. You know, a collection of experts talking about their experiences from a playing and coaching perspective and providing this expertise to softball families, softball players, to help them through their journey uh, through the softball, the softball world, their softball experience. I really enjoyed when Sue talked about how at UCLA, she tried to make gray plays more routine. So when she practiced, she had different types of practices. Some days they just did the, the real basic things, the basic movements of how to do their particular skill. But on other days, they, they had days where the kids were practicing gray areas, you know, fly balls in certain areas. And you have three different players calling the ball. Well, who's going to take it? And Sue stressed the idea that their kids knew who was going to take the gray, who was going to make the gray play. And I really enjoyed that. I, 
I also enjoyed her um, her comment on what legendary coach John Wooden taught her. Keep it simple. John Wooden told her when she was coaching to keep it simple, to understand that the more knowledge a coach has, the further the coach is from the player. And when you teach the kids, keep it simple so the kids can understand that. What a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you did too, and I look forward to our next interview. Well, thanks so much for listening, and please remember to share our podcast on Facebook and Twitter.